They were rocking along and they just stopped playing. Yeah, I've got just that kind of pull. A band on iTunes saw me step up to the front, so they just quit playing. The hush fell over the room, right? Uh, How you doing? Hey, Stevie, if you'd round up everybody from the cafe, tell them the main attraction's about to start. Thank you. (laughs) Good morning. My name's Ray, and I'm on staff here. And uh, as you heard from um, uh, Andrew, the um, senior pastor, Adam Russell, is on tour this weekend with the Embers, for which we are really glad. Uh, they played last night in Tus- no, they played last night in Birmingham, Alabama, this morning in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and then they're playing tonight in uh, Franklin, Tennessee. And uh, Adam sends his greetings. In fact, let me just read to you his exact words so that you will miss your pastor the way that you should miss your pastor. He wrote, "I hate being gone on Sunday mornings, crap." <laughs> so that sounds like Adam, yes. <laughs> There you go. But he said that uh, ministry last night in uh, Birmingham went really well. He said they blew the place up uh, and that uh, even better than that, uh, that uh, he himself got ministered to while they were doing the ministry. So that's good when you send your worship team out to minister to other people, but they feel like they're being poured into as well. Uh, Anybody been on Facebook and seen pictures of uh, Sam Crabtree planking throughout the South? I tried, I tried planking once in the privacy of my own home, and I pulled two muscles. So you won't be seeing any Facebook posts from me planking anytime soon. That's for darn sure. And um, so we're, the, the, the full band will be back, but I really want to express my gratitude to uh, Kevin Durham and to Tasha Nall and to Disco Rogers for the uh, unplugged set. What about unplugged worship, huh? Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I grew up listening to the Beatles and Yes and, you know, groups like that. So I, you know, if it's too loud, you know, I'm too old. But uh, I, I really was ministered to by the Unplugged set. And I'm so grateful uh, for people like Kevin and Tasha and for Disco that uh, fill in so ably for us. We're really, really blessed with that. And um, some, somewhere around, like just the, right at the beginning of the third song, I just really sensed a, a warmth and a presence of the Holy Spirit in the room. I don't know if you did. You know, worship is always a journey. The praise and worship is we express our hearts toward him, but the time comes when he expresses his heart back toward us. That's the way a relationship is supposed to be. And, and for me, at least, personally, that happened right about the third uh, number. So um, the, what I've learned over the years is that if the presence of God is in the room, it's always for his purposes and his purposes are always good. So, um, uh, so we want to welcome that. Would, um, would you guys pray along with me? Because we want to welcome God's presence into the room. And then uh, we want to give him all the room in the world to do whatever it is that he wants to do today. So let's pray. Um, Jesus, we're so grateful for the freedom of worship and the freedom to worship. And we're so grateful that we can express our hearts quietly or by dancing around, that we can, we can sit and soak or we can dance before you. We say, Lord of glory, you're welcome here. We open the gates of our heart and we say, you're welcome here. Now, Lord, I ask that you would release gifts of faith all across this room right now, that you would open our ears and hearts and that you would empower me to speak as I should. In your name we pray. Amen.
There you go. All right, well, we're done. No, that's, uh, that's just, uh, just me getting settled in. And um, what I want to talk about today, um, I, had to, I had to get some medical input. I called uh, Dr. Summer Tucker. Summer, are you in the room somewhere? She's not here right now? We have a new, we have a new doctor in the community, and, uh, and I, needed to get, uh, I needed to get some of uh, her input on this. I want to talk about two vital needs of every believer. And uh, before we go very much further in this particular message, I, I want to talk about that word vital. Do you know that the word vital means necessary for life? It, needs, it means life-giving, right? Uh, when something's vital, it means you can't do without it. And in talking today about two vital needs for every believer, I'm not saying that these are the only two, but I'm saying these are two things that we can't do without. And the reason that I needed some medical input is it turns out that, you know, we have organs in our body and some organs you can do with and some organs you cannot do without, right? And, um, you know, for example, uh, you need your heart. How many of you all know that? You don't have to go to medical school to know. You need your heart. No heart, you die. Uh, No lungs, you die. You can get by with one lung if, you know, you're a smoker and they have to cut something out or something like that. But uh, no lungs, you die. No brain, you die, at least you know, except for the people who listen to country music. Um, sorry. Yeah, there we go. All right, the fight will begin immediately afterwards. Can't do without your liver. You can't do without your kidneys. You can't do without your skin. I, you know, doing the research, you know, your skin is an organ, and it comes in very handy. Otherwise, I would just spill out everywhere. So you can't do without your skin. So in saying that there are two vital needs for every believer, I, you know, today's message, I'm not trying to say that, it's, that these are the only two needs, but I'm saying that if you want the radiance of the life of Jesus Christ to flow in you and through you and out into your community, these are at least two uh, vital needs. And the problem is, is that Christianity has so many voices, so many people trying to tell you what it is that you need, Right? You know, if you start to ask people, if we went around the room and we asked people, you know, what are the vital things that you need? Some people might say, well, you know, prayer's vital or, you know, reading the Bible's vital or fellowship or, or worship is, is vital. There, you know, there, there may even be some differences of opinion about things that are vital. And, I, and you know, as, as important as prayer or worship or Bible study or, you know, or fellowship are, those aren't the things that I want to talk about today. And, and what I want to start with, with Jack Black's help, is to simply ask a question this, and that is that uh, as uh, evangelicals, you know, we really believe strongly in what's called the born-again experience. There's a time when we are alienated from God, and there's a time when, when, when we're not alienated, that we receive uh, the gift of Jesus on the cross. Uh, and uh, Jesus in John chapter 3 calls it being born from above. But here's the question I want to start with today, and that is why is it that so many believers do not radiate the life of Jesus. If we say we're born from above, where's the family resemblance? You look around and sometimes, you, you, you know, you're even surprised to hear that, you know, this one's a Christian or that one's a Christian or they're surprised to hear that you're a Christian. And, you know, you begin to think, well, you know, if there's this new birth, then where's the family resemblance? Why is it that we don't radiate the, um, the life of Jesus? And I uh, I, the two vital needs that I want to talk about today are, are at least part, in part, the answer to that question. So here they are with all the buildup. 
the two vital needs that I want to talk about that, that you know, they're, they're, they're not the only needs, but they're very important, is every believer needs to be a disciple and needs to make disciples. Every believer needs to be a disciple and make disciples. And both are so important to our well-being in Jesus Christ. They're so important to the well-being of our family or of our church. There's, these, these needs are so vital to the well-being of our community. Do you know that our community, and not just this community, but so many around America, are desperate for disciples of Jesus Christ to make themselves known? And it's not the making themselves known. It's that, it's that the community desperately needs to see disciples of Jesus Christ. And, um, you know, the emphasis that we've had on the new birth, the emphasis on being born again, you know, repent because the kingdom of heaven is breaking in and, you know, receive, you know, the free gift of life in Jesus Christ. I'm for all of those things, right? But the emphasis that we've had on the new birth has unintentionally made discipleship seem as though it's optional. But it's not. You know, the New Testament community, the original followers of Jesus, could no more separate the born-again experience from discipleship than you could separate, you know, body from spirit or, you know, any, you know, biblical image that you want. The two go together. Being a disciple is no more optional than having a heart or a brain or a liver. And so these are the things that I want to talk about. It, it, it helps, actually, then the message falls into two nice categories. I'm going to talk first about what it means to be a disciple, and then I want to talk about what it means to make disciples. You good with that? All right, everybody's awake. Has the coffee kicked in? Has the sugar kicked in? Has anybody hit the sugar low after the sugar kicks in and then you get tired? No. Good. All right. Well, let's talk about uh, these things. And first I do, I want to talk about being a disciple. You see, here's the purpose and the end result of discipleship, and that is that our destination is, is the image of Jesus Christ. You know, I'm not a good enough theologian to talk about things like, oh, predestination or, you know, what are the ultimate purposes of God in the universe? But this much I know. And that is that it's our destiny to become conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. You know, what if predestination actually isn't about, you know, a sequence of time or events? What if predestination is actually a condition? And every believer, everyone who's been born from above, has a destiny to become conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Let's look at this for just a second. Did you know that the New Testament was originally written for believers. The New Testament, both the Gospels and the Epistles, they, they weren't written for evangelism. They were written for the community of faith. Uh, you know, and, it, and it's in that context of coming to the New Testament that, that we can, in part, you know, help develop this family likeness. In fact, the New Testament is far more concerned with spiritual formation than it is with the experience of the new birth. Because the original audience of the New Testament was the community of believers. They already believed. Does that make sense? The four Gospels, the book of Acts, all these letters that these guys wrote was far more concerned with our formation as disciples. For example, when Jesus talks in the Sermon on the Mount, that's in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he's not talking about how to be born again. He's talking about how to live and to navigate and to find life in God's kingdom. And not just the Sermon on the Mount, 
But in all of the Gospels, and certainly in all of Paul's letters, do you know that the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote, they were to communities of believers. Some communities, maybe not even as big as, you know, the folks that are assembled here. Spiritual formation, a major concern of the New Testament. Being born again, definitely a part of what the New Testament teaches. But we gather together in worship and in community and in study of God's Word, and what we're looking for is the life of God to radiate through us. Paul used language like this, I am concerned and I labor until Christ is formed in you. That's in Galatians. Or how about in in, uh, Romans chapter 8 when he says, you know, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Or don't let the world press you into its mold, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul was concerned with spiritual formation. So what about us? What about us? If you've made that initial decision to receive the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, if you've made that initial decision that your own efforts are inadequate to save yourself and that it's the blood of Jesus and his love and the concern of the Father that is is what qualifies us to fellowship with the Father, if you've made that decision, let me ask you this. Have you set Christ-likeness as a goal in your life? And I know the Sunday school answer is, well, yes, I've set Christ-likeness as a goal in my life. But you see, there's a real problem. And that is that most of us think deep, deeply and inwardly that Christ-likeness is really a pipe dream. I'm a sinner. Jesus forgave my sins. And that's going to be my wavelength. That's going to be my pattern for the rest of my life. I sin, he forgives me. I sin, he forgives me. Now that's true, but it's just not all of the truth. Let's do this, okay? And, uh, and, and I've done this before, but just play along with me. How many of you all think that Jesus Christ is a worthy role model? How many of you all think you can live up to his example? I'm, I'm happy to see there's at least one or two that left their hands up, but usually this is the way the wave works. It's like at a football game. Everybody says, yeah, Jesus is a great role model. What, me be like him? Forget it. It's our destiny to become conformed to the image of Jesus. The apostle Paul labored over the churches in Galatia and said, I don't want to have run in vain. I want Christ to be formed in you. We need to understand that God has a higher vision for who we are and what we can become than we have ourselves. That's really important. Because that's what it means to be a disciple. It means to not only experience the new birth, but then to begin to explore how we can live up to the potential of the DNA that's in us. Every baby that's born's got everything they need, right? The issue then becomes environment. The issue then becomes the nutrition. The issue becomes uh, love and affection and thriving. The issue becomes the family and the community so that every child has the opportunity to grow into their full potential. It's no different when we talk about the new birth. Our destiny is Christ-likeness. Or do we think that just somehow, you know, at age 89 and a half when you go, uh, and you're done, that boom, you've never been like Jesus all of your life. You take your last breath and all of a sudden your destiny is fulfilled? No, he's calling us to pursue it as a worthy goal right now. So the first thing that I want to say about being a disciple is that Christ-likeness is a worthy pursuit. 
it is our destination to become conformed to his image. Here's the way Jesus said it in Matthew's gospel. And I love the way he said it here. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, just ask yourselves both about your own life and about people that you know. Does does rest and peace characterize your life or the lives of Christians that you know? Does re- is rest and peace the characterization? Or is your life or the, or the Christians you know, are they just as weary and burdened as everybody else in life? Because Jesus has a message for the people who want to be his disciples. The fruit of being a disciple is rest and peace. So now you've got a blood pressure check. Now you've got a barometer. Now you can take your pulse. To the degree that you are experiencing the rest and the peace of God in your life is the degree of which that you are becoming a disciple. Too many lives are characterized by weariness and burdens. And Jesus gives three specific things that we can do in this verse. He says, come to me, take my yoke, and learn from me. Now, that's like a whole Sunday message just in and of itself. There's your three points and a conclusion and an altar call. Come to Jesus, take my yoke, and learn from me. And I really want to go on because I I, I want to just talk about the importance of being a disciple and of making other disciples. But the practical application just of those three things that Jesus said, you know, tonight when you go to bed, did did you know you might get homework when I'm speaking? You know, I'm, you know, kind of like a teacher. You know, my wife's so glad when I get teaching jobs at the university. She goes, finally, you'll teach somebody else and just give me some peace at home, right? Well, here's your homework. What does it mean in my life if I'm a you know, if I'm a, if a construction worker or a salesperson or I work in a kitchen or I'm a mother at home taking care of my, what does it mean to daily come to Jesus? What does it mean to take his yoke upon me? And what does it mean to learn from him? Because that's what Jesus is, is offering. And amazingly, if you begin to look at coming and taking and learning, everything in your life begins to change. In fact, change is a constant in the life of a disciple. Change is a constant in the life of a disciple. Um, let's look at uh, this passage here out of Luke, Luke chapter 9. Because I, I, I love this because it, it's, it's Jesus getting about as practical as you can get. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? The call that Jesus has is for us to become disciples. And being a disciple of Jesus involves daily choices. How many of you have ever met the kind of Christian who says, I got born again in 1973, and I've been in the way ever since. You know, they mean the way of Christ, but usually they're just in the way. 
You know, the idea is like, it's one and done. I've bought the T-shirt. And, you know, frankly, if you bought the T-shirt back in 1973, A, it doesn't fit, and B, it would be really tattered. Isn't that true? But Jesus says, let him come to me daily, daily turning our attention and our heart toward him. And, you know, in really practical ways. To become a disciple of Jesus Christ means to daily make decisions like choosing grace and compassion for other people, even as you yourself have received the grace and compassion of God. Let's just put a face on that. Who's the person that drives you the craziest in the neighborhood or at work or in your family? What would it be like if as a disciple we decided, I've been shown grace and compassion And as a disciple, I want to radiate the life of Christ. I need to show grace and compassion at work, in my family, in my neighborhood, at school. You see, change every day is a part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Now, there's a certain degree in which Christ-likeness is an infinite goal. There's, you know, will not, none of us will ever completely get there. But, you know, if you're imitating an infinite being such as Jesus Christ, that means that you can change at age 18, you can change at age 28. Heck, you can change at age 58. You can be changing, moving on towards the pursuit of the high calling when you're 78. Because there's always more of Jesus to imitate, to receive, to take on. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that it's not like, okay, well, I took that class. I learned that subject. I I aced the test, and now I'm done. I can put that behind me. No, there's always more. And in this particular passage, Jesus says, I love this. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Do you know Jesus uses that phrase four times throughout the Gospels? It's one of the most oft-repeated phrases in the New Testament, in, in the Gospels. Whoever will lose his life, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for his sake will find it. Now, can I just stir up a little bit of trouble? What are the implications of our spiritual life if all we want to do is get saved from hell and we don't want anything else from Jesus? Jesus says whoever wants to save their life will lose it. You understand the implication? If our only relationship with Jesus is that I just want fire insurance, then you're operating out of the old world, the old creation's you know, paradigm, which is whatever it takes to get me to safety, I'm in. You know, if it's Jesus, fine. If it's Buddha, fine. You know, if it's uh, Tony Robbins, fine with him. Whatever it takes, I just want to be safe. But actually, walking with Jesus is radically unsafe. It is a daily experience of taking up your cross. And you know what you do? What happens when you take up the cross? It'll kill you. You don't have to kill yourself. It just comes with the territory. You know, the the Apostle Paul, he was reflecting on his life as a disciple. And it's it's an amazing passage in uh, Corinthians where he says, you know, uh, you know, I've been in danger from this, I've been in danger from that, I've fought wild beasts in Ephesus, and then he says, I die daily in the pursuit of Christ. He was actually probably talking about the fact that he put his life on the line in the service of Jesus every day wherever he went. I mean, you know, you ever read the book of Acts? There's shipwrecks, there's imprisonments, there's all kinds of things. 
And just as, just as I've already challenged us to take those three words, come, take, and learn, it's, it's up to each of us in our unique settings to say, what does it mean for me to take up my cross and to follow Jesus? That's a whole other sermon, isn't it? We'll just dump all this on Pastor Adam. I'll teach this, and then he'll have to explain it all to you as time goes on. But change comes with the territory. And then finally, under this first category of being a disciple, this is so important. We want to be like Jesus. We want to embrace the change that, it, that, uh, that it's drawn out of us. We want to become a disciple, but yet he's not here. Isn't that a problem? I mean, now you've got a role model, first of all, who's perfect and infinite and nearly impossible to imitate. And so you're tempted to think, well, you know, I'll never do anything there. Well, don't buy into that temptation. And now you're saying, okay, Christ-likeness is a worthy pursuit, but Jesus, where are you? What do you do with that? You see, part of the, the core of being a disciple is to discover what, what Adam Russell has taught. I don't know. He's dropped it into every one of the last three messages. God works through people. God works through people. Whatever it is, nearly anything that God chooses to do in the earth, he chooses to do through a partnership with people. Now, I've been, I've been involved in ministry for many years. I've been a pastor for about 15 years. I can't tell you how many times I've had this discussion. Young person comes in, they're frustrated. They don't feel like their full potential is being, you know, you know, used in the church or whatever. And the young person, like, gets right up in my grill and says, you're trying to change me. And I go, well, don't you think you need change? And then they go, yeah, but not from you. We want to embrace the change of what it means to be a disciple, but where does that come from? Do you just, it's, it's osmosis. Now I lay me down to sleep. Jesus, wake me up the next morning, even a better person. That'll work, right? No. You see, when we embrace change, we also need to embrace the fact that Jesus isn't here anymore. And in fact, Jesus said, it's better for you that I leave because if I don't leave, the helper won't come. Jesus works through two agencies to make us a disciple through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the work of the Holy Spirit, and through the body of Christ. You know, I, my wife loves me. We've been married 26 years. She can tell you that I was not perfect when she married me. She's still rounding off the rough edges. Ladies, you don't even have to show me your hands. How many of you know that one of the primary jobs of a wife is to civilize her husband? Right? You know, when I got married, everything I owned was brown. My car was brown, all my clothes were brown, whatever furniture I had was brown. I never took a bath, so my skin was brown. Everything about me was brown. You know, and and Kim is like to have to work on the rough edges. That's one of the agencies of change, is that our family members are used of God to round out the rough edges in us. Pastor Adam, listen, Adam is is a man with vision, and, and he's, he, he knows where this church is headed for the next 20 years. Spiritual authority is an agent of change. But so is that impossible neighbor that is difficult to deal with. That's an agent of change. 
So is that family member that you just can't quite get along with. Any of these. You see, the hand in this picture is a human hand forming someone into the image of Christ. Now, you want a paradox of the Christian faith? God uses human hands to form you into the image of Christ. And only God can do that. Dr. Ray Roberts, he's got a great line with this. He says, God can hit a straight lick with a crooked stick. Doesn't that sound like D-Ray? You know, God can hit a straight lick with a crooked stick. It doesn't matter if I'm as screwed up as they come, somehow God can use me to help shape somebody in their discipleship. That's a heck of a way to run a railroad. You know, who's God placed in your life? I've mentioned Dr. Ray. Let's just go ahead and, you know, let's, let's hold him up as an example. He excels in sharing the life lessons that he has learned and tying them to the kingdom of God. He's a man of extreme generosity of both spirit and of substance. And he's a guy who opens up his house and he's a guy who joyfully wants anybody that he knows to enter into the life of the kingdom. Has he attained all of it? Is he the perfect reflection of Jesus? Well, no, just ask Candy. She can probably set you straight. But you understand that he welcomes people into his life and into his heart. And that's one of the kinds of people that, you know, that, that God can use. My wife was the director of a crisis pregnancy center here in town for, for several years. You know, one of the things that she discovered was that her ministry was as much to the other volunteers in the crisis pregnancy center as it was to the young women who walked through the door. The volunteers that came day after day after day, you know, they they wanted to be there and be available for some young woman who found herself either at risk for pregnancy or maybe pregnant. They wanted to be on hand. But guess what happened in the downtime when nobody walked through the door? A godly woman with years of marriage and a stable family and a, you know, kind of sloppy husband was able to share her life day after day after day with the volunteers. And her ministry really became twofold. Yeah, call to action when there's a crisis of a pregnancy. But how many of you know that crisis is not always the best way to spiritual formation? It's the daily thing. And so as a result, the volunteers that work there at the, at the, uh, at the crisis pregnancy center found themselves being formed spiritually by someone who had something to share. Now, is Kim perfect? Yes. Yes, she is. <laughs> Of course she is. I thought, of, I thought about, I started to think about, you know, so many people in the congregation. And, and you know, we could stop right here and just, you know, list them. But I, I want to give you one more because I, I've really admired what Lori Rogers has done within this church. That made you look up, didn't it? I saw that. Yeah. You know, Lori's married. She has four children, all under the age of two. What? No. How old's, how old's Noah? Noah is eight. And, you know, so she's got four children under the age of eight. Uh, you know, she spends most of her time at home taking care of children. Isn't that true? And yet, time and time again, I see it on Facebook. I hear from people firsthand where somebody says, yeah, you know, I was just, you know, doing laundry with Lori at her house, and we got to talking, and, and God came into the room, and, you know, she began to share from her heart, and she began to pray for me, and boom. You see, God uses human hands to form us into Christ-likeness. How many of you remember Dave Taylor that visited here from Kansas City, you know, a while ago? Do you know that God moved Dave Taylor out of ministry and into the work world at a major corporation so that he could be used as the human hands to shape co-workers into Christ-likeness? 
And I don't know how many years now in a row that he's been working at Hallmark, but that's become his ministry field. It doesn't matter if you're a stay-at-home mom. It doesn't matter if you work in the corporate world. It doesn't matter if you work in a, in a nonprofit organization or if you're just sharing out of the largesse of your life. God will use human hands to shape us into Christ-likeness. And if you're going to be reflecting on what it means to to come and take and to learn, if you're going to be reflecting on what it means to die daily, here's one more reflection as we finish up on what it means to be a disciple. Who has God put into my life to shape me in discipleship? It says in my notes, pause pregnantly to let it sink in. And you know what else? It doesn't matter. You could be 65 and God may still have someone in your circle that he will use to shape you into Christ-likeness. You could be 16, 65, doesn't matter. Okay, so what are two vital needs of every believer? Number one is? That's right. Woo! Very good. I've got one person listening. I am so excited. Checks in the mail, will you? And the second vital need of every disciple or every, every believer is to make disciples, to make disciples. You know, we really shouldn't call it the Great Commission. You know, you're in trouble with a Bible verse when it's so famous it has its own title. What that means is it gives you permission to actually ignore what it says and think you know it already because you know the title. This is out of Matthew's Gospel Right at the end, verses, uh, chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. I really like the full pericope here. Let's look at this. It says, Now then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And then Jesus said, trust your feelings, Luke. No, he didn't say that part. But Jesus did say, surely I'm with you, even to the end of the age. The second vital need that I want to talk about today, remember you've got brain, heart, lungs, kidney, liver, skin. You may need more than these, but these are two that we darn sure do need. The second one is, tells us that being a disciple is not enough. We are called by the master to make disciples. Who's called by the master to make disciples? Okay, you mean the person two rows in front of you and five over to the left? Because you're thinking, well, I don't know about me. But this is why I love the full passage. Here's the resurrected Jesus Christ. He's glorious. He's been there and done that. He's faced death. He's gone to, you know, he's, he's been three days in grave. He's, he's risen again. He's appeared to them over the space of 40 days, teaching about the kingdom of God. And it says, they go to the mountain in Galilee where he told them to go, and they worshiped him, but What? What's up with that? These are the 11. He spent three years with them. They're with the resurrected Jesus and still they have doubts. What a bunch of losers. And to that very group who've had the most substantial proof that anybody could ever have as to the claims of Jesus Christ, even though there's some doubt among them, Jesus gives the 
gives the charge to make disciples. Aren't you glad that your doubts don't disqualify you from making disciples? And it's not like just it has to be intellectual doubts. You're starting to think, oh, you know, I don't know. I'm not together in this area. I'm not together in this area. You know, when we hear that word doubt, all of a sudden we get all philosophical. We get all intellectual. You know, we get all everything. You know, the the truth is, is that if anyone whispers in your ear that you are not called to make disciples, whoever it is is lying to you. Because there is something that is not complete in us until we fulfill the Great Commission. There's something lacking in my life if I don't make disciples. There's something lacking in your life if you're not making disciples. And then, you know, there's, you know, again, it's like a whole sermon, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know, what is that? You know, I don't know. Immerse them in the fullness of God. When, When we make disciples, we want to bring somebody in and totally get them saturated with our life in Christ that points them towards Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I love it, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Now, do you understand the most practical help that I've ever gotten is when people tell me how they've learned to obey God. You know, 15 years ago, I was a road warrior, salesman, a couple of nights a week on the road. I would waste time. I would be distracted. And another salesman told me one time, he said, you know, the first thing I do when I go into a hotel room is I unplug the TV from the wall so that my default position when I'm on the road and alone isn't to just grab the clicker and to start surfing the channels. Because A, it could be a waste of time. B, who knows what kind of trouble you can get into on a hotel television. And he gave me the most practical advice ever. How did he learn to obey God? He said, I walk in, and the first thing I do is I unplug that. He said, now, if there's a ball game on or something and I want to watch it, I have to be really intentional about plugging it in and getting going again. He said, but at least it it kept him going an extra step to really determine what it was that he wanted to do when he's spending the night away from home. That's practical advice in how to obey Jesus. Is there anything wrong with watching TV in a hotel room? No. In fact, some nights it's a great comfort, right? But practical advice in how to obey Jesus comes in so many areas. You, know, you could be a student and you might be able to share what it means you know, to order your life so that you are actually bringing God glory by, you know, by fulfilling your call as a student. And you might be able to share that with somebody. Because Paul said, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Lloyd Rogers has people come fold you know, laundry with her, and all of a sudden there's revival breaking out. You know, Kim would have people come to the pregnancy center, and it was downtime when nothing was happening. And I'd walk in, and there'd be you know, three volunteers crying, and Kim's hugging them. And, you know, there was breakthrough. That's what we need is... We need to teach other people how to obey God. It's not enough to go, you, well, you'd better obey God. That doesn't help. But the practical advice, and, you know, where has God given you breakthrough or victory in your life? All right, none of us are complete. None of us are there. But where has God given you breakthrough? I, you know, I, I can substantially tell you that the Lord has given me the ability to really feel at peace in just about any setting. And so sometimes when I don't know what to pray for somebody, I just put my hands on them and I say, Lord, even as you've given me peace, I ask the peace that you've given me would become this person's peace. 
I had, I had an incident on the phone where somebody called me and needed, you know, they were upset, they were, you know, they were, you know, in pain, there were several things going on, and the only thing I knew to pray was, you know, Jesus, just come on this person with your peace. And my wife told me later, you could visibly see the peace come upon that person. Wherever God has given you victory, that's a point for you to disciple others. Doesn't have to be big, could be little. All right? So making disciples, it certainly involves, all the way over, the Great Commission. It it involves this. It involves the idea that faith is relational, it's not propositional. Again, and and I, I hope I'm not coming down too hard on evangelicalism in general. But when we reduce the faith of the gospel of the kingdom of God down to you're a sinner, you got a sin problem, Jesus got a sin solution, receive the solution. When we reduce it down to that, we have made the faith propositional. Do you agree with these things? Good, you're in. Jesus spent day by day for three and a half years with 12 guys. Now, part of what he was teaching us by his actions was that faith is relational, it's not propositional. When I share my life with people who really know me, God bless you, when I share my life with people who really know me, then that life has a chance of actually having some power. If I simply share doctrine, even, and, and you know, I'm, I'm certainly not in favor of false doctrine, but when I share just true words that are merely words, you, you guys ever done that in a college class? The words come out of the professor's mouth, donk, they hit you right in the head, then they fall on the floor. Maybe 10% of them can find their way to your notes. And, right? That is if you're not texting, you know. A lot, of, a lot of kids text in classes these days. New Testament, yeah. Yeah. See, we need to grab hold of the idea that making disciples changes the idea of faith from propositional truth to relational truth. It was the model that Jesus gave us. Do you know Jesus was the word of God when they were gathering firewood? Jesus was the word of God when it was time to pay the taxes and he said, go fishing and in the mouth of the fish you'll find two coins. Can you imagine the grumbling of the disciples that had to go out and catch the fish? What the heck kind of way is this to pay your... Oh my gosh, look! It's probably not the way they said it. See... Faith is relational more than it's propositional. Yeah, we want the correct propositions, don't we? But the only way to be, to, to be a disciple or to make disciples is through relationship. And then, you ready for this? This is dangerous. You ready to duck? That brings up the challenge of transparency. How do I disciple people in areas where I have not yet found complete victory, breakthrough, or freedom? How do I do that? Well, the first answer is just be honest. You know, I've I've had people say, oh, you know, my great aunt just gave me $10,000. I'm wondering what to do with it. And I go, oh, my God, don't ask me for financial advice. And I tell them, you know, look, you know, in my life, that's an area where I still don't have, you know, all of the peace and the freedom and the control that I need. And they go, really? You? And I go, oh, yeah, I'm a total mess. And they go, no, 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 you're so together, blah, 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 blah. Do you know that by being transparent with one another about our weaknesses, 
that we give people permission to bring the truth into the light? It's the challenge of transparency, and it's a challenge for everybody that wants to make disciples. Oh, I can't let them know that because then I wouldn't be able to stand up here and preach, right? Now, the truth is, is that our transparency about our weaknesses as well as our successes actually gives us the moral authority to share our life in Christ. Can I say that again? Our transparency about our weaknesses as well as our strengths gives us the moral authority to disciple other people. That's so important. You know, I've been to accountability groups, you know, where people, you know, deal with issues. What happens when you tell lies at your accountability group? You know, what are they going to do, bust you? Oh, I've been a good boy this week. Been through all seven areas, haven't made any mistakes. Last question, have you lied about any of the other seven? Oh, no, not me, I haven't lied. How does that accountability group help you? But transparency helps them and helps you. And then finally, maturity means fruitfulness. How many of you know this story that Jesus told? There's a sower, and he's going to go sow the seed, and he slings it everywhere. It goes on the hard path. It goes on rocky soil. It goes on other soil and other soil, and I don't know. It goes on a lot of places, right? And at the end, the soil finds, or I mean the seed finds good soil, and what happens to the seed that finds good soil? It produces fruit 30 times, 60 times, or 100 times. You see, making disciples means reproduction. Are you the kind of person who eagerly wants to reproduce the life of Christ that's in you in other people? Oh, don't follow me. I'm just a man. Follow Jesus. Good luck. I can't do it, but I'm saved. Or do you want to say, I want to take everything that God's given me every success, everything that he's working in me, and I, and I want to give it away. Maturity means reproduction. And, and, and here's a life goal. And, you know, Adam has also said this from the pulpit. You know, our church is, you know, 220, 230 on an average Sunday. Maybe, maybe our orbit is maybe 400 people in the community because nobody comes here every week in a row, except for those of you that just got offended by that. Okay. Um, you know, and... You know, the truth is, is that, you know, Adam, as good of a senior pastor as he is, he cannot pastor 220, 230 people, much less 400 people, right? Here's one of my life goals. Here's how I want to stand before the Father, is that if I have fruitfulness in my life and I make 30 disciples, that's a life well spent. I met the Lord in 1970. So I'm at year 41. And if I could in my lifetime make 30 disciples, that's a life well spent. If I'm particularly effective, maybe I'll make 60. And if I'm a superstar, I might make 100. Do you, do you understand? You know, it's, it's not like notches on your belt. Well, I shared the gospel and 15 people came forward. I mean, I'm, I'm okay with that. Because the Holy Spirit can work in their lives and, you know, they can have a context for it. I'm not saying don't share the gospel in that, that sense. But if I want fruitfulness or reproductivity in my life, I will die a happy man at 30 or 60 or 100-fold. Does that make sense? Maturity means fruitfulness. It also takes the pressure off of us 
to think like, you know, that we have to, you know, be doing something every day that has got some measurable amount. Sitting, you know, sitting at the pregnancy center, just hanging out with the girls is fruitfulness if you're sharing your life. Folding laundry together is fruitfulness if you're sharing your life. Dr. Ray, enjoying meals around his table with people and laughing and and drawing people in to to the, the family that he has is fruitfulness if you're sharing the life of Christ. Well, uh, Dave Taylor, at work, you know, being obedient to the voice of God is fruitfulness. Don't, don't you want that kind of fruitfulness in your life? At least, well, I do. So, there you go. Two vital needs of every believer. I need to be a disciple, and I need to disciple others. What's that, what's that look like in your life? Now, Sunday mornings is a great day for asking the questions and for painting the broad brushstrokes. But answering those questions goes right down to how we raise our children, who we invite over for dinner, how we relate to our neighbors, what we do at work, and you know, even participating in the life of the church here in smaller groups or in friendships. You know, you, you, don't, have, you don't have to have a small group authorized and on the website to have a really tight group of friends that just are life-giving. Isn't that nice? And nobody's going to get mad around here. Oh, that group's not authorized. Thank goodness. Jeez, had enough of that. All right. So I want to suggest to you that discipleship is not optional. And I also want to suggest to you that besides it not being optional, something is lacking in my development with Jesus unless I'm making disciples. Why didn't I just say that at the beginning? Could have saved everybody 45 minutes, right? We have a ministry team today.